0: This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello. uh, My name is Carolyn Luger. I'm a structural biologist at the University of Colorado at Boulder and an investigator for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And today, I want to tell you uh, about a couple of key experiments that enabled a breakthrough in our decade-long efforts to determine the three-dimensional structure of the nucleosome. But before I do this, I want to highlight the importance of this problem at that time. The human genome is over two meters in length and has to fit into a nucleus that's about five microns in size. A good analogy for this would be if you had to fit a human hair that is 10 miles long into a golf ball. And you now imagine that you have to take that hair and split it into two during a process called DNA replication. Or imagine you have to find certain bits of information on that piece of hair, um, all the while leaving the hair in the golf ball and uh, avoiding tangles or knots. A good analogy for using DNA as an informational molecule is a cassette tape that was used in prehistoric times by humans to record music and play music. Just like the cassette tape, uh, human genome packaging uh, poses many challenges. We have to package the information in a very confined space. We have to protect it from physical damages and tangles. We have to regulate access to the stored information. So you need to find your favorite ABBA song on your tape. You need to be able to tag that somehow and find it rapidly. Uh, And we also have to accurately and rapidly replicate the information that is encoded on the tape. Let's say you want to share that tape with your friends. Early views of human genome packaging uh, came from taking chromosomes out of cells and spreading them very, very thinly on electron microscopy microscopy grids. Uh, This revealed that uh, the fundamental organizing uh, unit of chromatin are are spherical, about 10 nanometer-sized particles. These can then separate it out from, uh, from... from the chromosome by using an enzyme called micrococcal nuclease. This enzyme cuts unprotected DNA, but it will not cut the particles themselves. And then further analysis of these particles revealed that they're composed of DNA, uh, roughly 150 base pairs of DNA, and four to five small, very basic histone proteins efforts were undertaken to determine the structure of the nucleosome by X-ray crystallography, which was the method of choice in the 20th century. Uh, This method entails taking your molecule that you're interested in and convincing it to form ordered crystals. You do this by uh, subtly changing the solvent conditions around the molecule to molecules to convince them to aggregate with each other in an ordered manner to form these beautiful structures here, uh, shown in this green droplet. These crystals are about 100 to 500 micrometers in size. So they're very, very small. So you use a microscope to fish them out with a tiny little loop. It's almost like a spoon uh, to mount them in this crystal loop. This loop is then uh, immersed in uh, liquid nitrogen to rapidly vitrify the solvent around it, and is then mounted on a goniometer head uh, to be be illuminated by X-rays the electrons in our molecule will diffract the X-rays. And those diffracted X-rays are collected on either a film or, in later times, uh, by electronic media. Um, And it is this diffraction pattern that then, through a series of quite complicated mathematical um, operations that I will not go into, uh, will then give rise to what we call the electron density map. And this electron density map is then used to build your macromolecule, uh, which then allows you to identify the location of every atom with respect to every other atom. Now you hear crystallographers talking a lot about high resolution. Uh, High resolution is really needed to understand function. What does that mean? Imagine you're an alien and you're trying to figure out the function of a human hand. Imagine now all, you, the all the only information that you have is a is a mitten. You find a mitten on the road, and from that you conclude that humans have a large paddle-like protrusion and a smaller protrusion, and this constitutes the human hand. Now imagine that you're finding a ski mitten. You're getting quite a lot of uh, more resolution. You now know that humans have five fingers, but it's still quite limited in the details that you can observe. The highest resolution structure you would obtain from a latex glove, and there you can figure out details in the finger joints, and you could uh, begin to understand how the human hand functions. This also illustrates a major problem that we have in crystallography, because the images that we obtain, the structures that we obtain, are static images. And from static images, it's sometimes hard to understand functions. And that's why crystallographers and other structural biologists always use orthogonal approaches to to obtain different states of the molecule in question so that we can interpolate between those different states to see how they get from here to there. And we also use additional methods to Observe these machines and molecules in the act of doing their job. Now, back to resolution. What determines the resolution in a crystal? It is determined by order. A single crystal is contained is, is composed of billions and billions of macromolecules. In the ideal case, all macromolecules would look the same. As seen in the example to the left side, we have all of our macromolecules very happy and smiling. And so the average structure that we get from that crystal lattice would be a smiley. And this would be a very high-resolution structure. In contrast, if some of our macromolecules are not happy, they're frownies, they're incorporated into the crystals. And what we get from these crystals is a composite of smileys and frownies. And so we really have a hard time to determine what their facial expression is. And this is what would constitute a low-resolution structure. Now, back to nucleosomes. The way nucleosomes were isolated uh, in previous days and uh, were by isolating chromatin from natural uh, sources, from chicken blood or calf thymus, and by cutting out nucleosomes with micrococcal nuclease and using those for crystallization. Now this posed a problem because by definition, the DNA sequence of every single nucleosome would be different because we sample the entire genome. The DNA length would also be subtly different because the enzyme isn't that accurate in chewing back all the way. And the histone components, the protein components, are also uh, highly uh, variable because they exist in many flavors. These many flavors have very, very important biological implications. But as far as crystallography goes, uh, they really represent a big problem because they preclude uh, the formation of highly diffracting crystals because the material is just simply too heterogeneous. And so this could be, this should come as no surprise that the first efforts to determine the, seven ang- to determine the structure of the nucleosome were limited to seven angstroms. So this would be the equivalent of a mitten. Um, and, and we really couldn't see a lot of detail from these structures, but uh, we could discern that the DNA was wrapped around the outside of the protein. The protein constituted a, a, a dense core, and we could discern the superhelical path of the DNA around the outside of the cylinder details were not distinguishable. Uh, We... this structure did not allow us to determine how the histones hold to the DNA and how they afford this uh, quite profound uh, distortion. I should also point out that these low-resolution structures, more than anything else, rely on orthogonal methods to verify the conclusions that we draw from them. And in this particular case, very beautiful cross-linking data from the Mirza Bekov lab uh, really helped us uh, to verify that this structure uh, was, was true. Now, how do we get to high resolution? How do we get from these diffraction patterns that have very, only very few diffraction spots to these beautiful starry night like looking diffraction patterns, uh, where we have lots of information and as we, as we say, they diffract to very high resolution. There's three fundamental, um, improvements that had to be made. First and most importantly, sample homogeneity. So we had to convince our nucleosomes all to be happy and smiley. um, And this proved to be the most time-consuming and most difficult aspect of this project. The second was that we had to find a way to determine the phases. And that was not a trivial matter. And this is not something I will go into in great detail. And third, we needed access to stronger X-ray beams, and it was very fortuitous that at that time, uh, 3rd generation generation synchrotrons were developed uh, that allowed us... um, that that produced very hard X-rays that were required for this project. So how do we get to uh, greater sample homogeneity? Obviously, cutting nucleosomes out from native tissues did not work. So we had to Individually express every single histone in bacteria. We then had to refold those histones to form what we call a histone octamer, just a protein component of the nucleosome. We then had to find a DNA sequence that was uniquely uh, suited to position nucleosomes and to form nucleosomes, and we had to uh, prep prepare vast amounts of that DNA. And that was in and of itself a major undertaking uh, and involved a lot of phenol extraction um, and not a lot of fun, I should say. You you then combine those two components, and I had to develop methods to uh, form the nucleosomes in in vitro. Uh, Once I've done that, I had to convince myself and others that these nucleosomes that I made from scratch, from bottom up, from their basic components, are exactly the same, just better, than the native nucleosomes that we would isolate from tissues. And that required uh, quite a long, uh, long effort in... 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 in efforts in biochemistry and other approaches. But finally, we had nucleosomes that had... were unique with DNA sequence and length. They had highly uniform histones. And furthermore, this approach allowed us to introduce mutants into the histones. And this proved to be essential for our efforts to determine the phase problem. So all is well. Everybody's happy. We should be well on our way to determine a high-resolution structure. But of course, this was not so. As science goes, two steps forward, three steps back. The crystals that we obtained from this allegedly much better material were actually much worse. They diffracted badly. Sometimes they didn't crystallize at all. We got thin window panes that were really not easy to mount at all. and so it seemed like all our efforts were for naught. Um, and so this was really uh, a low point in this whole effort. And I really... we really had to dig ourselves out from this hole. I should point out that the material that we put into these crystals, when we analyze them on native gel uh looks kind of fuzzy. And that's just how they looked like. But uh, In order to find out why these crystals all of a sudden were so um, ill-behaved and didn't produce, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't diffract as well, I had to figure out what was incorporated into the crystal. Maybe something had to happen in that long time where they refused to crystallize for them uh, so that they could be converted into a form that allowed them to crystallize. So one way to do this is you just take your hard-earned crystals and you dissolve them and you analyze them in a gel. And much to my surprise, I found that rather than being fuzzy, like the input material, these crystals were actually the, the contents of the crystals was actually a very nice, crisp, and uh, tight band. So this was really weird. What happens? There's two possibilities, uh, formal possibilities. In one possibility, we have a mixture of smileys and frownies. And only the smileys make it into the crystal. So when I dissolve my crystal, I can only see the nice tight band composed of smileys. And the frownies would still be in what we call the mother liquor. This is the liquor surrounding our crystal. In the second possibility, uh, it could be that these two forms are interchangeable or in equilibrium. And it could be that only our smileys are incorporated into the crystals, and thereby shifting the equilibrium Pulling the frownies over to the smileys. In this case, I would have smileys in my crystals and nothing in the mother liquor. So, this is a very easy hypothesis to test. And uh, to our delight, we saw that there was really nothing left in the mother liquor. Uh, And so this really means that this hypothesis was correct, and now we had to find a way to convince all of our frownies to be converted into smileys, and that would really solve all of our problems and allow us to move ahead in in our efforts to determine the structure. So what are the possible reasons for uh, this sample heterogeneity? We know that our histones are uniform, we know our DNA is uniform, so the only variable that was left was the position of the DNA on the histone octamer. And this is illustrated by this little yarn spool here with a white DNA wrapped around it. In the top example, the DNA is positioned centrally and nice and tightly tucked in. In the bottom example, I tucked on the left-hand side of my yarn... of of my... of my DNA and pulled it off a little bit. This leaves a little bit more of the yarn spool exposed and leaves some of the DNA sticking out. And indeed, this is what we... uh, what we believe has happened. Uh, This is shown in this cartoon uh, underneath the gel here. Uh, The three bands, we believe, uh, are... um, constitute the central, centrally positioned nucleosome that would be the most fast moving because it's the most compact. And then we'd have two nucleosome species that have DNA hanging out either on the left side or on the right side at different angles. And that would change their electrophoretic behavior. And that thus would result in those three bands. So how could we convince these two top species to move to the centrally positioned species? Now, we surmised that uh, the centrally positioned species would be the thermodynamically most stable because most of the DNA is bound tightly. And so this would be a more stable situation than having DNA kind of flopping off the side. And so uh, uh, we figured that a simple heating step could actually do the job of converting these species into each other. And uh, much to our surprise, just introducing a little bit of thermal energy, uh, heating our samples at 37 degrees for half an hour, actually did the job. And we now got beautifully homogeneous particles that actually gave rise to beautiful crystals. And what was even better, these crystals diffracted to very high resolution, uh, giving rise to these diffraction patterns um, that still, uh, I get goosebumps when I see them, just because they're so um, nice to look at. Now you think you're done, right? But you're really not done. Structural biology is an endurance sport, maybe like a triathlon. Uh, So we've solved the first... uh, we solved the first problem, the structural homogeneity. We've obtained well-diffracting crystals. Now we have to solve the phase problem. Without going into detail, the phase problem... to solve this problem involved me making about 25 or 30 mutants in histones isolating each of these mutants independently, making 25 different flavors of nucleosomes and uh, collecting data on these nucleosomes uh, so that we could obtain uh, heavy atom derivatives. And the third hurdle that we had to overcome was uh, using a high-energy X-ray source. These are very weakly diffracting crystals, and they require what we call very hard X-rays so that we could get enough intensity from our diffracted crystals. And luckily, the third-generation synchrotrons were under construction and were becoming operational just at that time. And synchrotrons are large particle uh, accelerators. They're about Two kilometers in diameter. This is the one in Grenoble, the ESRF. We were among the first users, and rumors have it that the first users used their waiting time while the samples were exposed to place squash in empty hutches and use the smooth concrete floors uh, for rollerblading. I would not know anything about these rumors, so um, I will deny all, um, all accounts of this. That's all I'll say about it. So now, uh, remember what the, the result that we get from diffraction experiments is not the structure itself. It is actually the electron density. The electron density without a model built into it tells us nothing. The electron density, so, so then I had to sit for about a year in a dark room painstakingly and manually building a three-dimensional structure into this model. Now, this was really, really difficult because... We had no idea where to start. We had no idea what the secondary structure of these proteins was. We had no idea where the DNA was. This is the raw data that we had. And so this is like a big three-dimensional puzzle. And only when all the parts are fit in correctly, you can account for all the electron density. And so this is what the final product then would look like. Um, And this this required, as I said, about one year of work um, in a dark room uh, in front of a computer monitor. Not a very social experience. Um, Here's a detailed detailed, um, view of the same density. And you can see that now we can actually obtain the orientation of the main chain and of the side chains of the protein. And this allowed us to really... uh, to, to describe how the DNA is held so tightly by the histones, how the histones interact with each other. And this gave, the, gave rise to this iconic picture here of the final nucleosome structure in two different um, orientations that now graces mouse pads and uh, textbooks and t shirts. Um, and it's just generally very, very uh, pretty to look at. Um, like all scientific endeavors, uh, this particular uh, Project uh, took very many years, and it was a huge group uh, effort and couldn't have been done without my colleagues at the ETH Zurich uh, with the guidance of Tim Richmond. Visit us at ibiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.